Hello and welcome to the Anishinaabe History Podcast. I'm Chris Waite. Thank you to Keith Makepeace for your patronage. Miigwech. Today we're talking about Canada's Indian Act. The Indian Act began officially in 1876 and is still legislation in 2020. The Indian Act has undergone some changes in the nearly 150 years since its inception, but it is still used by politicians as leverage for conducting business. The Indian Act is legislation in Canada that has been specifically designed and implemented to keep Native people as wards of the state, and therefore as second-class citizens. The Indian Act didn't happen all in one day, nor all at once. So how did it begin? Legitimacy for the Indian Act came through various pieces of colonial legislation such as the British North America Act. As a Commonwealth colony, Canada was empowered via the might of the British Crown to act as authority over a large swath of indigenous peoples. After the end of the War of 1812, the role of native people, in the eyes of Britain, was no longer that of potential allies, but as obstacles to progress. The colonization of indigenous peoples didn't happen overnight. It was a long, slow, and deliberate process. There was a master plan. But what was the plan? For answers, we need to go back to the 1840s. This was the same decade that Cree chief Poundmaker was born. In Cree, Poundmaker's name is Pito Kahana Puyin. Poundmaker was born into a life on the plains dependent upon buffalo. His name, Pito Kahana Puyin, refers to his ability to lead buffalo into harvesting enclosures known as pounds. He used his drum song to entice the buffalo into the pounds, hence the name Poundmaker. Poundmaker was born near Battleford, Saskatchewan. The Red Pheasant Cree Nation has an Indian reservation near there today. In the same year that the Indian Act was enacted, 1876, Chief Poundmaker and his people entered into Treaty No. 6. But due to his political dealings with Canada, Poundmaker became critical of the Canadian government actually living up to its promises. By the late 1870s, Buffalo were scarce and treaties were being signed. In 1885, Louis Riel rebelled against Canadian authority. Chief Poundmaker had been implicated in rebel activities and became the target of the Canadian military. Canadian troops pursued Poundmaker into his people's camp on Cutknife Hill. The military, under command of Lieutenant Colonel William Otter, had to retreat from the hill after six hours of inconclusive skirmishing. Poundmaker ordered his fighters not to pursue the fleeing soldiers. Despite this small victory, Chief Poundmaker would later surrender and spend seven months in prison. Poundmaker wanted justice. He wanted to hold the government accountable to its promises as outlined in a treaty he had signed on to. By signing a treaty, the Indian Act became justifiably enforceable. But who could hold the crown responsible when it failed to live up to its treaty responsibilities? Would the King of England help his red children? No. The various treaties and the Indian Act fit together like a hand and glove. The stripping of indigenous identity in Canada via the Indian Act has earlier roots in the Bagot Commission's report of 1844. 
This report was a review of government policies and expenditures pertaining to the Indians in what was at the time known as the Province of Canada. The report took two years to complete. At the end of the review of the system and interviews with various stakeholders, the report proposed that federally run Indian residential schools would be an effective tool to separate Indian children from the influence of their parents. This was deemed necessary because the Europeanized progress of the Indians was not to the liking of the colonial government. The report also proposed that natives be forced to choose only one legal status, that is, Indian or citizen. There was to be no middle ground. In the 1840s, Canada as a country did not yet exist. Instead, Canada West and Canada East were established as the two halves of the new colony named the Province of Canada, under the flag of the British Empire. The father of Manitoba, Louis Riel, had not yet had his first rebellion. In fact, Louis Riel was born the same year that the Bago Commission's report was released, 1844. Charles Bego had recently been appointed as Governor-General of the newly coined Province of Canada in British North America. He was not an elected official, but the 1844 Bego Commission's report contained suggestions for the assimilation of the entire body of Indigenous peoples in the colony nonetheless. The goal of assimilation, as opposed to extermination, was a result of the liberal political leanings of a strong group of lobbyists in favor of Aboriginal rights. The Commission was not out to make the lives of Indians better. That was the role of the Indian Affairs Department. In reality, the Commission was out to make financial cuts and improve efficiency in the act of assimilating Indigenous peoples. Recommendations in the Bago Commission's report of 1844 would later influence the Indian Act of 1876. The report was the framework for the Act. Indeed, the very definition of what an Indian was was first outlined in the Bago report. The political definition was changed from generation to generation as political whims deemed prescient. The Indian Act, 30 years after the publication of the Bago report, unilaterally legislated reservations, elections, and even the cultural identity of so-called Indians. The Bago Commission's definition of Indian was as follows, quote, First, all persons of Indian blood reputed to belong to the particular body or tribe of Indians interested in such lands and their descendants. Secondly, all persons intermarried with any such Indians and residing amongst them and the descendants of all such persons. Thirdly, all persons residing among such Indians whose parents on either side were or are Indians of such body or tribe, or entitled to be considered as such. And, fourthly, all persons adopted in infancy by such Indians and residing in the village or upon the lands of such tribe or body of Indians and their descendants. End quote. So the first definition of Indians included non-Aboriginal people as potentially part of the tribe. But as the years went on, Canada would change the legal definition of Indian as it saw fit, typically narrowing the scope each time. 
The Indian Act itself does not contain the same definition of Indian as does the Bego Report. The Indian Act, as it was enacted in 1876, had a narrower definition than did the Bego Report. The 1876 Indian Act defined an Indian as follows, quote, Any male person of Indian blood reported to belong to a particular band, any child of such person, any woman who is or was lawfully married to such person, end quote. Thus, native people were forced to choose a new identity. No longer were there indigenous nations. Now there were merely Indians, and Indians were wards of the state. In Canada, via the Indian Act and various treaties, Indians were forced onto Indian reservations so that European settlers could build towns, farms, and roads on newly cleared land. Indeed, John A. Macdonald, the first Prime Minister of Canada won his election by promising to build a transcontinental railway from coast to coast. If Indians happened to be in the way, they would be removed. The Indian Act gave the government the authority to do that. The locations of Indian reservations were usually chosen by Euro-Canadian lawmakers. Indian reservations were placed, often, in undesirable locations. At one point, a plan had even existed to remove all of the Indians from Canada East onto the Manitoulin Islands. That plan didn't come to fruition due to some strong political opposition to it, including the Indians of Canada East. The Indian Act also provided for the removal and forced migration of an entire Indian reservation if the location of that reservation interfered with public works of European settlers. An example is the Kitsilano Reservation in Vancouver, British Columbia. Kitsilano is part of downtown Vancouver. In other words, part of Vancouver is built upon Kitsilano Indian Reservation. The Kitsilano area is on the southern shore of False Creek, which is actually a short ocean inlet within English Bay. If you're in Vancouver and you cross the Burrard Street Bridge, the Granville Island Bridge, or the Camby Street Bridge, then you're crossing the False Creek Inlet. Rogers Arena and the BC Place Stadium are on the north shore of False Creek. Science World is on the eastern shore of False Creek. This area is the traditional territory of the Squamish people. In 1869, 37 acres were reserved at the mouth of False Creek for Indians. Eight years later, in 1877, this reserve was expanded to 80 acres but allotted solely to the Squamish people. In 1901, the Canadian Pacific Railway obtained a seven-acre right-of-way. Today in Vancouver, the train station is on Terminal Avenue near Science World. The SkyTrain stops nearby. But in 1904, that infrastructure did not exist. There were lots of trees, however. So in 1904, the Squamish nation surrendered 11 acres to a lumber company. There were terms of agreement such as jobs being provided, lumber for houses, a fence for the cemetery, and compensation for the loss of an orchard. Some jobs ended up being provided. But seven years later, in April 1911, a discussion in Parliament declared that having a reserve near a town was a hindrance to development. Thus, in May of 1911, 
the Indian Act was unilaterally amended, removing the need for approvals from band councils. One of the amendments, Section 46, gave municipalities or companies the right to expropriate parts of reserves to build roads, railways, or other public facilities subject to the approval of the federal government. Section 49 was written to give the government the supposed right to relocate any reserve situated near a town of 8,000 or more residents without having to obtain the prior approval of the reserve's residents. In 1913, the province of British Columbia convinced Squamish leaders to sell some land and leave for about $11,000 per family. The land sold would remain little developed until 1930, when another expropriation of about six acres of reserve land was claimed by the city of Vancouver in order to build the Burrard Street Bridge. But wait, there's more. In 1934, the Department of National Defense was granted, unilaterally via the Indian Act, four acres of reserve land. Then in 1942, the Indian Affairs Department of Canada leased about 42 acres of land belonging to the Squamish Nation to the Department of Defense for the duration of World War II. Then, after the war, from 1947 to 1965, the reserve lands were broken into parcels and sold. None of this had been done with the consent of the First Nations people, whose reserved territorial lands were being bought and sold from under their feet. Did the money changing hands ever go to the people whose land it was? Or did colonial speculators merely get rich from the dispossession of indigenous people? The courts would have to consider such things in 1977 when the Squamish nation launched legal action to reclaim portions of expropriated reservation land. In 2002, after a century of expropriation by the government, the Squamish nation was able to claim a small victory in reclaiming one small portion of its former reserve lands. So that's what happened in one area of the Squamish nation because of the Indian Act. Not only did the Indian Act dictate where some potential Canadians were to live, it also dictated how some potential Canadians were to behave. What I mean by this is that the Indian Act cajoled indigenous groups of people into adopting a Euro-Christian framework for politics by imposing the chief and band council system. The band council system has been a source of strife across many nations on Turtle Island. One reason for the strife is that the chief and band council system was established to be a boys-only club. This male-oriented political system opposed the matriarchal systems already in place in many nations across Turtle Island. Women were further oppressed via the Indian Act due to the legislated loss of cultural status simply through marriage to a white man. In other words, any Indian woman who married a white man was no longer an Indian in the eyes of the law. Furthermore, any children of that woman would not be considered an Indian. Imagine the audacity of a government dictating to a portion of the population that it will no longer recognize the inherent heritage of the children of mothers. But it did happen, here in Canada. And this section of the Indian Act was in place for almost a hundred years. 
It was only in the 1980s that this misogynistic politicking was overturned. What else was written into the Indian Act? I won't list everything here, but here are some more examples. From 1881 to 2014, the Indian Act created a permit system used for controlling Indians' ability to sell farm products. Ammunition sale to Indians was also prohibited from 1882 onwards. Alcohol and intoxicants were forbidden to be sold to Indians from 1884 to an undetermined time in the future. The Indian Act also declared cultural ceremonies such as the potlatch illegal from 1884 to 1951. This had the effect of forcing a lot of traditional knowledge underground. Indians were also restricted under the Indian Act from leaving their reservation without explicit permission from an Indian agent. This past system was in effect from 1885 to 1951. Residential schools were empowered via the Indian Act. These schools ran officially from 1886 to 1996. Indigenous languages became illegal under the Indian Act from the 1880s to the 1960s. Furthermore, the Indian Act from 1906 to 1951 forbade Indians in the West from appearing in any public dance, show, exhibition, stampede, or pageant while wearing traditional regalia. From 1927 to 1951, the Act also forbade Indians from forming political organizations and prohibited anyone, Aboriginal or non-Aboriginal, from soliciting funds for Indians to even hire legal counsel. Then, in 1953, my mom was born. That's all for today's episode. Stay tuned for more episodes in the future. I'm Chris Waite, and this has been the Anishinaabe History Podcast.